You know, if you were left on a desert island with the Bible, you'd probably be fine. You know, just reading it on your own with the Lord being your teacher and your guide, the Holy Spirit showing you might take a little bit longer. Wouldn't maybe make the leaps and bounds as we can make with our uh, with our helps, our other teachers that come into our lives that God brings us, whether that's through a commentary or even right now. But you'd be fine if you just read the Bible. Because it interprets itself, and it's very clear. And I think sometimes we forget that. It just says what it says. We can make it mean other things, but we've seen how that works in our world, and we can see that more and more as they change the definitions of words and twist the way words are interpreted nowadays. And, and, and we can do the same thing with Scripture. And remember, we always interpret and twist things to our benefit, you see. But if we were just going to read this and really wanted a deep walk with the Lord, we'd be fine, is the idea. The Colossians were fine with Christ. They had the gospel. They had received it. Paul wasn't the one to deliver it to them. Somebody else did. And uh, Epaphras, we believe, is the pastor of this church. And he's done a wonderful job, except he hasn't protected them from heresies that creep into the church. Paul warned uh, the pastors and the elders and all the leadership in, in Ephesus when he had his little uh, first pastor's conference in the book of Acts. He says, when I depart, savage wolves are going to come in from the outside and from within, and they're going to seek to destroy you. And it's amazing how that takes place. The gospel goes through this area, through this Epaphras, we believe, and they received it with gladness. I mean, who wouldn't? Good news, simply taught, is easy to receive. But um, there are other people that aren't happy with your simple faith, with your grace, with your mercy, with the freedom you now have in Christ. And they want to bring you under some kind of bondage or twist it to where their flesh can have its way. And that's what's taken in Colossae. Um, the church has been inundated with two different doctrines that are false doctrines. One is Gnosticism, and the second is just flat out, and we've already dealt with this, Jewish um, legalism. Um, and it started to permeate the church to the point where Paul has to write this letter to them. This is one of four uh, epistles, which simply means shorter letter. We call it a book in the Bible, but it's really a letter that Paul writes from prison. First one was Ephesians, Philippians, we've been through both of those. Uh, next one will be Philemon, when we get there, it's a few books away, um, a few letters away. And then this one, to the Colossians. Those are the four letters he writes from Rome, if you want to you know, know that sort of thing. And so, this is such a big deal that it can't wait till he gets there. Paul's never been to this church before, he's just heard of them. But he's also heard that there are some problems in that church. And so he feels the need to write to them and not wait till he gets there. So that's why he writes the letter. He does want to visit, but he doesn't know when or if he'll ever get there. So he has to write this letter because it's a burden to him. It's always a burden to someone who has been down that road of legalism and has been set free from legalism into the freedom and the simplicity of Christ to see others fall into the trap you just escaped from, you know. Um, it's a difficult thing to watch happen, and it's frustrating. And so Paul's very protective of these new believers and the traps that are being laid for them. He begins in verse 1, 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his usual greeting. It's his usual introduction. Um, but he has to say these things. And knowing what we know now about the struggles this church is having, you can, you can even see why he writes it this way and how important it is that he says this greeting to them. I want you to know that you're in Christ, that you're faithful in Christ, that you're complete in Christ, which will come up later on in the text. I'm happy that you have this relationship with God. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, not by man. Not, I didn't pick this. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints, remember that. Your believers, your saints, already, there's nothing you need to add to that. The fact that you have faith in Jesus Christ is all the salvation you need and all the salvation you can get. You're a saint. Can't emphasize that enough. To, to take that saint word away from every believer and then to say uh, only certain people are saints. You've got to have a, a miracle take place in your life. It has to be approved and witnessed for you to be a saint. This false doctrine and false teaching. You're all saints. Everyone in this room who's a believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. And Paul simply reminds them of that. It's nice to know you're okay. That's really what Paul's saying. That's the simple truth of it. Colossi, you're okay. You know, They're telling you you're not okay. They're telling you not to fight your flesh. They're telling you you need more than what was shared with you. And I'm here to tell you as an apostle of Jesus Christ, you're all right with Christ. And that's very comforting. And so that's why he finishes this greeting with grace to you. And you've received that. That's unmerited favor. You can't merit it no matter who's telling you otherwise. And then you should have the peace of God that follows with that. So if you only had those first two verses written to you from Paul, from prison, it should undo so much heresy in our lives. You're a saint because you believed in Jesus. You're in Christ. And the Apostle Paul says you're okay. The grace that you've been given should bring you peace. It's enough. Um, the Gnostics. Mm. <laughs> They're a funny group. And we'll get into the details of that. And I think I have that down for verse 14 or after verse 14. We'll talk about Gnosticism. But um, next week is really kind of the nitty gritty. Chapter 2 is when Paul lays out the two verses or actually three verses that kind of wipe those two doctrines out. Now, I'll read them to you now because who wants to wait till next week to be set free from this stuff, right? Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, For in him, Jesus Christ, dwells the Godhead bodily. Jesus is completely God in total, and he is completely man, which the Gnostics didn't believe. The second scripture he gives them in 2 Colossians is 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding festivals or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. You've received Jesus. The things they're trying to take you back to, rules, regulations, rituals, those are all shadows that were cast by the one you have. Why would you go back to the shadow when you have the very substance that was casting the shadow? 
And so he takes care of both of those doctrines. You can leave it all behind. And we've always used this. You guys can probably know the exact story I'm going to share with you right now. But if I go on a long trip and the love of my life, Jennifer Ann Dirks, isn't with me, and I bring a photo of her, you know, with me, I set it by my hotel bed. Oh, there's Jenny, you know. I love her, I miss her. And I come home finally and I get off the gate and she's there to meet me and I walk right past her with the photo in my hand. Oh, Jenny, what a ridiculous thought, right? That's all Paul's trying to say. Why are you going back to the photo? You've got him. You've got the very one that you love, the very one that you've been waiting on. Why would you stare back at the photo? You don't need it anymore. You've got him. So very simple truth, very wonderful two verses. So he tries to take care of both of those things and, and, and fulfill that. Now with that, and the reason I brought that up is with Gnosticism, Jesus was not truly God. He was kind of part God. He was like halvesies. He was like a stepping stone to God. He was an emissary, an, an, an intermediate person or you know, way to get to, but you still need approval. You'll still need this. You still need that. But he's not truly God. They didn't believe he was flesh. They believed he was all spiritual. Because, and here's where they got it from. See, doctrines start someplace. Jesus can't be God in the flesh because we know that everything of the flesh is evil. Well, that's not what he says in Genesis 1 through 3, does it? He made it and it was good. He made it, it was good. See, the idea from Gnosticism was everything material, chairs, this stuff that we're in, my body, the food you eat, it's all flesh, it's all material things, it's all evil, it's all evil. The only thing that matters is your soul, your spirit, that's all that matters. The hardware, everything around you, it's all evil. Now, because they believe that, then Jesus couldn't be flesh. God can't be flesh because that's evil. So therefore, because we've come to the conclusion that all things, you see how it starts? It messes up everything because you start off with the wrong premise. No, material things aren't evil. They're corrupted, maybe. Maybe there's some things wrong with them, but he, he's still, it's still his creation. It's still his. It's just been corrupted by somebody else. And just like he wants to work in us and change us and transform us, he knows that this creation will be changed and transformed also. But it's not evil in and of itself. It's been corrupted is all. But he can cleanse all that. He can change all that. And so he can't be God, as far as Gnostics say. Now, here's the interesting byproduct of that. Because if nothing in the flesh matters, nothing I do in the flesh matters, it's just flesh, I can do whatever I want. It has no bearing on my eternity, it has no bearing on my soul or my spirit. How convenient is that? I can go do whatever I want to do with whomever I want to do it, and there's no repercussions. Nothing. So you kill two birds with one stone. It's not me. It's my flesh. It had nothing to do with me. My soul was really sickened by what my flesh did last night. What a ridiculous thought, right? But that was the idea. So let me take you to, now this isn't one of my cross references, but I think we need to go to this. Hebrews 1.8. Because not only does Paul tell us there that in him dwells all the Godhead bodily, that's enough for us 
sometimes people don't like the way it's worded. So it's like, well, I, what does he mean bodily? Does he mean, it's, you know, so let's get to where it says in the Bible that Jesus is God. Because that's the big question. Jesus never claimed to be God. He absolutely did. He absolutely did. And if not, the Father said so. It starts like this in Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews is telling the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. And he says this in verse, let's start in verse 5. For to which of the angels, if you thought he was just an angel, did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? None is the idea. It's a rhetorical question. And again, I will be a him, a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and we'll talk about firstborn in a minute, not first birth, not created, firstborn in position. Firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Everybody's to worship this person we're talking about, the son. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he, the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The Father calls Jesus God. That should end the conversation even in the Hebrew, even in the Greek, even when you go into the other languages and the tenses and the, and the you know, the neuter gender and the, you know, it, it all is the same thing. The Father calls Jesus God. Jesus is God come in the flesh. That's it. So I had to go there so we understand that because that is one of the things that's even said today. It's a problem we still have. If you just read the Bible, no one would doubt that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Thomas looks at him, my Lord and my God. Everybody that bows down to worship Jesus, Jesus never says, don't worship me. Like all the other angels do, whoever get worshipped in the Bible, say, stop it, don't worship me. Jesus says, yeah, I'll take that, I'll receive that. Because he's worthy. Scriptures are clear. They're very clear on this. We like to muddle it, and here's why. Because we have that Gnostic mentality sometimes, not us necessarily, but they. Because I want to do whatever I want to do in the flesh. And if this is true, I can't do what I want to do in the flesh, so let me twist things around so that I can do what I want to do in the flesh. And so that's where Gnosticism, and it was even before. But it's a problem. Now, that was a lot, I know. Verse 3, we give thanks to God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. And again, another run-on sentence from Paul. So we take the semicolons as where the period should be for him. You can see his passion, though, as someone who loves and just uh, no filter. I just want to tell you, we heard about your faith. Epaphras told us all about 
this, how, how he shared the gospel and how you received it and how you enjoyed it. Oh, and ever since then, there's been nothing but fruit coming out of your, your lives. And, and this is happening all over the world. You're not the only ones. It's happening everywhere. You know, it, your life can get a little myopic sometimes if you don't, especially the, they don't have phones. They don't have, they don't know what's going on a hundred miles from where they are most of the time. They just hear rumors and things. Paul, I'm here to tell you. It's happening everywhere. What's happening to you is happening. It's a wonderful work. It's a wonderful, encouraging them in, in where they are, what you're doing, how it's happening. You know, the progress you're making, the fruit that's coming from you, this is wonderful. And ever since we heard of that, we've been praying for you. I've never met you. There's nothing more exciting than to see believers born and people being set free, and lives being changed, and we just pray for you. Now later he's going to tell us in verse 9 on what he's been praying for, but for now, just know this, Colossians. We've been praying for you, because we love you. Um, Some of the things about prayer. If you turn to Isaiah 56, 7, please. That's Old Testament to your left. One of the bigger prophets. 56.7 Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's unheard of. Now, it's hard for me to bypass, you know, to skip over what that means, in, in especially as we get closer to Easter, which is coming up in a few days. Um, but Jesus flipped the tables where they were money changing in the court around the temple that was meant for the other nations, the Gentiles. So they could come and worship their God because Isaiah just told us that that's what that was for. So he was so upset. Why is he so mad? Why is he so violent? Why? I can't, Jesus is peaceful. And he was mad and flipping tables and made a whip at one point and was whipping everybody out of that place because my house shall be called a house of prayer. And this place that you guys have taken over for buying and selling is where the Gentiles, all the other nations, are supposed to be praying. And they can't because you're here, because you don't care, because you think it's, you're exclusive and you're not. It's meant for everybody. Now, remember that portion, house of prayer. If you turn to John chapter 4, verse 29, there's a progression here. Hopefully you'll understand it when I get done here. There's a method to my madness here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is the woman at the well, a Samarian. Jesus has asked for a drink, and here's her response. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We know very well how you feel about us. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is and who and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his son, or his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him, in him, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. They may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husbands and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. As you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Changing the subject. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say in Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. There's a division there, a pier down there. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, or what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So why do I bring that up? Because Isaiah says, my house is to be a house of prayer. Jesus tells this woman, it's not going to matter where you worship pretty soon. It's going to be worshiping in the spirit. And then our final scripture to tie it all together is going to be 1 Corinthians 3.16. It's right after Romans. Still to your left of our original text. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone uh, defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temples you are. My house is to be a house of prayer. We're going to worship in spirit and truth, and that is fulfilled in the fact that Christ is in you, and you are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God, so you... You worship wherever you are. This place is not a place of worship. This is a place where the church meets. You're the church. You're the temple. If no one's here, no, there's no worship. There's nothing about holy ground. There's nothing holy about this place. It's only when you're here. Wherever you go as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the temple. That's where prayer takes place. That's what Paul's talking about. Wherever Paul is, Paul is in temple. Although he's in a prison, he's worshiping and praying in his house, your house, my house, this house, is a house of prayer. It's to be a house of prayer. He says, I don't ever cease to pray. Ever since I heard about you, I've been praying for you. Prayer is not a light subject. We kind of treat it as a light subject. I'm not here to bash you. You need to come to prayer more often. You need to be praying more. Probably do. All of us do. I don't think anybody prays enough. You can boast, I pray four hours a day. You probably should pray five. You know, there's always a more. I just, I think we need to understand the importance and how it it does move things. It changes things. It, It moves things forward spiritually. It protects people. It draws people to Christ. I don't know how all that works, but I know that we're called to do it. 
And when we do it, and we do it earnestly, and we do it faithfully, not because it's something to do or to something to make us closer to God, but realize the power and the importance of, of it, it's very effective. The prayers of a righteous man avail much. They do. And I don't know how that works or why that works. I just know that God says it does work, and so we do it. So Paul from prison is praying for them, and he wants them to know that. I hope you can feel these prayers. I hope you can see the fruit that's coming from this. I hope you understand the love I have for you, because that's all mixed in there. Verse 9, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Since we heard about your faith, you know, here's what we prayed. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom. The knowledge of God's will for you and everybody in this world is your sanctification. That is the will of God for you, to be set apart, to be different. I do not want you to remain the same worldly person that you were when I first introduced myself to you and you received me. I'm here to separate you from the rest of the world now. The world's full of goats. I've made you a sheep. I need to separate the sheep from the goats. I want to start doing that with you now. You're going to behave differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to bad differently than the goats, you know. I want to do that. And that comes from the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We have worldly understanding. We have ritual understanding, which is what they're being taught by the Jewish um, legalists. Well, you're, you're doing it wrong, you know. Your robe's tied wrong. The tassels are in the front, not in the back. Actually, they're on all four corners. You've got it crooked, you know. Ah, i got to learn how to do this religious stuff right. If your worship has to be that, it's not what God has authorized in Scripture. It's not. You can't pray wrong. Pray to the Lord. I mean, that's, I guess, the first step. You can do that wrong, I guess. Don't pray to the chair. It's not going to answer you. You do have to pray to God. And those who seek him have to first believe that he is. You don't just pray to nothingness. You really believe he's there, so you pray. So let that be a few things we've got to do right. When you call out to God, he understands. If I say the wrong words, should we pray out loud together? You asked me to pray for you. Should we pray out loud? I don't pray out loud. Okay, well, you don't have to. But the fear is unwarranted. I, I don't think I'll say the right words. You can't say the wrong words. Then you're worried about what I'm going to hear, not what he's going to hear, that's for sure. And I understand that. I don't want you to judge me. Uh, I won't, but you don't know that about me. So we'll pray quietly, but you do need to talk to him. you know. And he won't judge you, and he won't think you did it wrong. He gets you. He understands what you meant, you know. You ever feel like you always have to qualify what you said? You know, hey, I said, that's not what I meant exactly. What I meant was, uh, what I meant was, you just have to say it once and God just scram- unscrambles it all. I got it. I know. I knew before, you, I knew your heart before you even opened your mouth. I got it. I know exactly what you're worried about and why you came here, what you're saying to me. Pray. Understand the spiritual things, not the worldly things. I'm here to separate you, to divide you, to make you different from the rest of this world. They're concerned about how they're perceived and understood. I'm telling you, I know you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I know you better than anybody. I know the number of hairs on your head. My thoughts towards you are as the sands of the sea, and they're precious thoughts. Should put us at ease. 
The second thing he prays for in verse 10 is that you may walk worthy of the Lord. I think that's important to say more and more nowadays. Because it does matter how we walk. There, we hear more often than not, because we love grace and mercy, that it doesn't matter who you are or what you're like. And that's true when you come to Christ. But understand what Paul's prayer is for this entire church, is that you walk worthy of the Lord. Now that he is your father, you can't be more saved. You can't change your destination. You're going to heaven, that's for sure. But let's walk like we're going to heaven. Let's walk like he's our father now, and Satan isn't ruling over us anymore. Let's walk like that. Let's start acting like saved people do. Grateful, thankful, humble, broken, full of love and grace for everybody else because you know how much you receive from God? I want you to walk worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing Him. Hmm. Not partially. I want my life to be fully pleasing to God. That's very convicting for me up here. You should probably all quit and walk away. I don't know that I should teach anymore because my life isn't fully pleasing to God. But Paul's prayer for me and for you is that it would be. And all all I mean by that is I know that I'm imperfect and I'll never attain because Paul never attained. I know all the scriptures. I'm a pastor. I don't want to ever in my own life be content there. I'm mostly pleasing to the Lord. Paul says, my prayer is that you're fully pleasing to him. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You understand that when we first started this chapter, he's teaching and writing to believers only. He's not talking about it. This is not an evangelical. I mean, God will use it to bring people to the Lord, this book, this little letter. But it's meant for church. Saved people once saved, need to grow in the Lord and the knowledge of, and the understanding of who he is. He doesn't want to just save us and leave us and, and have us walk in complete immaturity and foolishness. He wants us to grow up. You know? Yeah, we start off young and we don't know much. and we, it's, He calls it the pure milk of the word of God. Just so, but he says, eventually we've got to choose solid food. We need to grow. That's his prayer for them. I pray that you'd be increasing in the knowledge of God, that you continue to grow closer and closer to him, strengthened in verse 11, with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Those three things that he just mentioned there come from the first parts. If I sanctify myself and set myself apart like Christ wants me to be from this world, I start walking worthy, fully pleasing him, What comes from that is the very thing I asked for at the beginning. I want strength, God. Strengthen me. I need power in my life, God. I want want joy. I want to be able to have patience. Those things come from the things he mentioned first. We don't jump right to verse 11 without doing verse 10 and so on. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of of the inheritance of the saints. Remember, that's past tense. These next three things have already happened. The Father who has qualified us. You are qualified. Can't be any more qualified than that. To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed, past tense, us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's all happened. 
knowing those three things, that he's qualified us, he's delivered us, that he's already conveyed us, moved us into this place that, we're, that we love, you know, heaven, grace, mercy, forgiveness, all these things have, has been given to us. That's why he says the first part. Now, now walk like that. Now walk like those things have happened to you. You can't work for those three things. They've already taken place. We work from those things. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's quite a strong letter. <laughs> Sanctified, delivered, conveyed. Gnosticism. We, we kind of covered it enough, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit so we understand the, the problem with Gnosticism. It's kind of a long read, but we have some time here before we have to... Actually, we don't have a lot of time. I'm only halfway through. I'll put this in the link. How about that? I'll comment this in today's uh, teaching on Facebook that way. And if you don't have that, I can send it to you via email. But it's gotquestions.com. And then you type in the word Gnosticism, which is with a G, if you didn't know that. It's a silent G. And then you can read it on your own. But I'll post it in there. That way we don't take the time because it's three pages long. Thought it needed to be thorough tonight. You get the gist of Gnosticism. It's really about being a brainiac and proud of it. Gnostics always felt higher because they had the true understanding and nobody else did. Tells you all you need to know. But anyway. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, not of all creation, over all creation. Very important word to understand. Jesus isn't the first created of all creation, which is how a lot of people read that, and that's how the Gnostics read it. He's not created. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's talking about preeminence, which he actually says in verse 18. So let me finish this thought. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. He's first. He has authority. He's over it all. Okay, preeminence. Here's the best example of this. Joseph. Jacob's son, Joseph, has two sons, right? Their names are Manasseh and Ephraim. Tradition was you'd bring your kids to grandpa and grandpa would bless the kids. And when they blessed them, it happened. It's not like, oh, God bless you. No, they like said, you're going to be rich and powerful and you're going to blow everybody up. And it happened just like they said. So they bring Manasseh and Ephraim to Jacob, the grandpa, to bless. Manasseh's the firstborn. Ephraim was the secondborn. The right hand goes on Manasseh. It's supposed to. Jacob's kind of blind, so Joseph brings him in in the right position. Manasseh to the right hand, if you can reverse it here. Manasseh to the right hand, Ephraim to the left, and that way Grandpa can kill two birds with one stone and pray for them both, right? The boys get brought up, and Jacob by the Spirit goes, boom, switches places. 
and gives Ephraim, the secondborn son, the firstborn rights so that he has preeminence. You get the idea? Firstborn doesn't mean like we think J.C. Dirks is our firstborn child. Sure. What they're saying is, what Paul is saying is here that Jesus Christ is not the first created. He has preeminence. He has the authority of the firstborn child. The firstborn child back then had everything. They got double portion, double blessing of everything. Okay. That's the idea. So when Paul says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. All that means is, and he tells us that in verse 18, Jesus has preeminence over all creation. Everything was created by him, in him, before him, everything. He, he, I mean, there was no before him, but you get the before, before this all existed, he was. Jesus was. He's God. So already before he even mentions Gnosticism, which he never does, he's already defeating Gnosticism by showing this. How can you argue with this? So he's giving them some foundational truths with whether or not you knew it or not, you need this stuff. Because if you haven't run into it yet as a believer, you will be confronted with this very topic. Maybe you've been shielded from it so far, but someone's going to come up to you and say, Jesus really isn't God. I mean, he's a great prophet. And you're going to have to, wait, I, just, I was there at Wednesday night, pretty sure the Bible says he is. But this person's been a believer a lot longer than I have. It doesn't mean anything anymore, by the way. There's guys that are teaching college right now, seminaries, that don't believe Jesus is God. They don't believe in the miracles. And they're teaching our next pastors in a lot of denominations. So it's no wonder when they come out of these seminaries. (laughs) That's an old joke, old, old, old. Not every seminary is bad. But you do have to have your ears attentive and listening, and not everything they say is gospel. you got to filter. you got to be a Berean. The Bereans are some of the most wonderful folks in Scripture. You'll only find them in the book of Acts. Paul would come in and teach and share, and they'd listen with fair-mindedness, and then they would go home, and they would search the Scriptures to make sure what he said was so. Every one of us needs to be doing that. Here, there, and everywhere, all the time. I will not know it if I'm weird. I won't. I won't know it that I'm off. I'll think I'm right. And I will teach it like I am right. And this is absolutely how it's supposed to be. Your job as a believer is to say, okay, I'll be fair-minded. I'll listen to you. I'm going to search the scriptures. Now, as long as you search the scriptures to find out whether I said what I said was right, you'll be fine. If you challenge what I say with someone else's thoughts, you might not be, not be very accurate. But if you challenge it against God's word, accurate all the time. It's 100% accurate all the time. God's word. Trust it completely. Trust me, 95% of the time. How's that? You don't know it. They don't know it. When you read this letter aloud in Colossae, you do understand the folks that are teaching this stuff are sitting in the crowd and how uncomfortable are they right now. What did Paul say? What's that letter say? Read that part again. He said that Jesus is God come in the flesh. We just taught last Thursday that he wasn't in adult Bible study, you know. And Paul says, that's uncomfortable for me, you know. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Verse 19, I got two minutes. (laughs) For it pleased the Father 
that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He keeps mentioning his flesh and mentioning the spirit every time he talks about Jesus, just to make sure God saw both as holy. Jesus was holy in the flesh. He never sinned. He was never corrupt. And he was holy in the spirit because he is the spirit of Christ. He's the Holy Spirit all together. He is the fullness. And he makes sure of that. And he repeats it over and over so they understand what you first believed is not wrong. It's correct. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked works, and we were, our sin made us enemies of God, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jesus in his flesh redeemed your spirit. You see what he's doing there? Okay. If indeed you continue in the faith, Hmm. grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister or a servant. Verse 23 needs to be understood. It's a problem for some people. It's a problem for those who believe once saved, always saved. That's fine, but you you get taught once saved, always saved by a person. This scripture is very difficult to jive with that thought. Paul isn't warning because it's not an issue. He's warning because it is an issue. Some people have been taught that their whole lives. And so when they hear it for the first time and they read something like verse 23... It's a little disturbing because you feel like your foundation's been rocked. And it's not supposed to. That's not what Paul's trying to get at. He's not trying to say, you're always on shaky ground. You never know if you're saved. You better watch out, you know. But that's how it's heard today from those who've been taught once saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, be careful that nobody moves you from the truth that you first understood. Continue in what you know. Continue in faith in Christ, trusting in the cross, knowing that Jesus did it for you. Stay there. Don't ever move away from that. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Once you begin to work for salvation, Christ profits you nothing. He said that to the Galatians. What are you doing? You can't work for salvation. Who taught you that? And so he gives a very simple warning, but it's a very clear one. If you read it just like it's written, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, the good news, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. It's not new. It's not exclusive. Everybody's get saved, not just the Gnostics who think they know. You can see what he's doing here. Of which I, Paul, became a minister. Very important. And it, it can be controversial. I don't think it has to be. If you have problems with it, we don't have time. Read John 15, the entire chapter. It talks about abiding faith. Abide in the vine. The second sense of scripture is Romans 11. You were grafted in. And then he also warns you can be grafted out. So we understand the thought is consistent through scripture. Stay attached to Christ. Verse 24 I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh 
what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have to pause there. Paul's saying, I'm filling up in my flesh what was not finished up in Jesus' flesh, which causes red flags. Are you kidding me? What do you mean Christ wasn't finished at the cross? No. The afflictions that I'm going through are for his body. The body is the body of Christ now. And now that the church has started, you are going to be abused and beaten and whipped just like Jesus was. And I'm fulfilling in my flesh. I'm carrying on the ministry of Christ. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's all he's saying. Okay. And I'm finishing up these afflictions. The reason I'm in chains is because of the gospel. The reason why everybody hates me is because I'm sharing the gospel. The reason why they beat me is because I love Jesus. That's why they beat Christ. They're going to beat Paul. And they're going to beat us. So, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery. I love it when the Bible says mysteries. Everybody, what's the mystery? Which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Anybody want to know a secret? To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That is a mystery. Everybody was looking for the Christ, the Messiah, who was going to come outwardly and take care of outward problems and take care of Rome and oppression and all those people that were hurting the Jews their entire lives. The Messiah was going to come and do that. And Paul says, no, the mystery is this. Christ is in you. That's not just figurative. It's literal. Christ is in our hearts. We take him wherever we go. We think he hears, he sees, he knows all these things. He's in us. And that's a huge thing. Now, we are not God, not what I'm saying, not what Paul's saying, but make no mistake about it, Christ is in you. That's supposed to be encouraging, not threatening or make everybody worry, but encouraging. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. He says that earlier on with, with uh, in, I think it's 1 John. He's, uh, the, the, he's crying out, the Spirit. If you're saved, Christ is crying out from inside of you, Abba, Father. That drawing you feel to pray, to reach out, to, to ask God, to do whatever, that comes from Christ in you to his Father. In him, or him we preach. This Jesus is in you. That's who we talk about. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So not only is he in you, you are in him. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And that's where we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we've had. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you for Paul's heart. Some really, as we learned last week about about what it means to be a Christian and how to, how the church is supposed to act tonight in this whole book, we're gonna we're gonna learn about you, Jesus, who you are to us, and what you've done. And we're thankful for that. It, it assures us. It makes us grounded. It makes us feel close and solid, not stable, unstable, not shaky, because we're with you. We thank you for that assurance tonight. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I do have an announcement because I didn't go over it. it. Was We have a Good Friday service coming up. I know we shared a lot about it on Sunday, but um, we're going to start at 7 o'clock. 
Um, but there's going to be some refreshments and all, but we do want it to be a little subdued, you know, uh, because we're talking about the death of Christ and all. And then on Sunday morning, we have our resurrection morning, and uh, that's where we have our outside service. So join us for those two times. If you're interested, this Friday at 7 o'clock, we'll have the Good Friday, and then sunrise service will be at 645. But if we don't see you, we'll hopefully see you at 9 a.m. or 11. So um, I think that's it. All right, have a good night, everybody.